Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deacon. On the show today, reach staff strike condemning poor pay for high-pressure workloads. Discontent brews at Broadcasting House. Could BBC journalists join the picket lines next? And Snap scales back in response to the economic crisis. What does a restructure mean for the social media company? Plus, Dina Sofos and Lewis Goodall share their big plans for the newsagent's podcast. And in the Media Quiz, we uncover who's been under the spotlight in the industry this That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. So in the news this week, Netflix brings forward the launch of its ad-supported tier with a November release date. Meanwhile, competitor Disney Plus isn't far behind with ads coming in December. The company's also reportedly exploring an Amazon Prime-style membership program offering discounts and perks. And over in the world of news, GB News is shaking up its stars, replacing all of its mid-afternoon shows, including Alex Phillips and Colin Brazier. And the campaign to save Channel 4 from privatisation continues. TV and film producers have urged the UK's next PM to abandon its sale of the broadcaster. A letter from 786 firms lent support warning that the sale would damage their businesses and be a distraction during these uncertain economic times. But right now in today's show, I've got two experts with me to unpack the media headlines. First up on The Wire, all the way from Australia, is the editor of Pod News, James Cridland. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, You've recently been in Dallas for Podcast Movement. How did that all go? It went uh, very good, very, very, very tiring. But it's very clear that there's uh, a bunch of money going into the podcast industry over there. But it was uh, five days of, um, you know, deep fried chicken, basically. And what what were the big topics? Uh, the big topics, I think, were lots of brands um, coming into this space. It was interesting spotting that the lanyard for the Sounds Profitable Day uh, was sponsored by Disney Advertising, who, uh, you know, very clearly are getting very deep into the podcast world. But, uh, you know, just um, every time I go there, you see more and more of these large brands that, uh, you know, are jumping into, into the podcast world. Uh, Also with me is Press Gazette's UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Charlotte, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. There's two sort of significant obituaries from the news industry this week. Uh, One was uh, Bill Turnbull, BBC Breakfast presenter. And the other one was Charles Wilson, who's a former Times editor. How do we think Charles is likely to be remembered? I think very fondly. I mean, he sounds like one of those big newsroom characters, one of those sort of 
editors you don't get anymore. Maybe this isn't the one thing he'd want to be remembered for, but he was the Times editor that fired Boris Johnson for faking a quote. And Boris was one of only three journalists fired under Charles Wilson's editorship. So um, that must have been quite a high bar. (laughs) Well, he clearly knew what he was doing. Um, Okay, on to our first story this week. Um, There's been a bit of disruption in the world of journalism. On Wednesday, 1,150 journalists at Reach across the UK and Ireland went on strike. Uh, Reach's news sites include the Daily Mirror, Daily Express, Manchester Evening News and the Liverpool Echo. Charlotte, you've been following this story quite closely. Um, What's been happening? What, what, What are all the staff upset about? So basically it's about the annual pay deal, Reach offered them a pay rise of 3% or a minimum of, I think it's £750. And they basically said quite strongly, no, that's not enough. We want more with the cost of living going up. That doesn't cover inflation. You're giving us a real terms pay cut. But even more than that by itself, what really upset them was the size of the earnings that their chief executive, Jim Mullen, is getting there's this figure that's always bandied about four million in reality it's not as much as that because a lot of that is in shares that he can't access yet Uh, and the share price has gone down since that was sort of first released but still even in his basic salary you know he did get a pay rise and and staff basically are saying you know well we we're the ones that produce all of the content that enables reach to make money we should be being paid more fairly so um Uh, And the strength of feeling is obviously quite strong because uh, it was a pretty high turnout and vote on the ballot that's led to the strike action. So how did the strike go? Would readers have noticed? Would there have been an impact on on their news? So I had a look at some of the websites on Wednesday. It was definitely less than usual, obviously, by having fewer people. And obviously the benefit is uh, of having a massive publisher like Reach as they can share stuff across their sites. So, you know, they might have someone in London still working and they can use that across lots of the different sites if they need to there was a bit of accidental story duplication within the paper as well so basically casual readers might not have noticed but you know it definitely obviously wasn't nearly the same uh, service that, that they would usually get I mean, junior employees are reportedly earning less than £20,000 a year, even after uh, a year of training. Are they asking too much of their journalists for too little? Is that a sustainable uh, situation? It feels like in local journalism, low pay has been a thing for a long time, but that maybe this is a turning point if people are saying, you know, no, we don't, we've had enough. You know, we, we did a story with people saying... Um, they had to do second jobs and actually at some of these bar jobs they were earning more or they had to delay their weddings because they couldn't afford it and that sort of thing. So it was interesting to hear the uh, sort of real life reasons people felt that they need this pay rise of more than 3%. But um, yeah, it does really feel like this is a turning point, especially with all the other strikes across various industries as well at the moment. And Reach responded by saying that 2022 continues to be extremely challenging for the whole publishing sector with reduced demand for advertising, energy inflation and the cost of newsprint at record levels. Do you think that's a good defence, James? Is it understandable that the papers themselves might be under a bit of a crunch right now? I mean, it's certainly the case, I think, everywhere. We've just seen a bunch of involuntary redundancies 
from uh, News Corp here in uh, Australia, uh, possibly as much as 30, but certainly more than 15 or so. And, uh, you know, it's very clear that as we head into a recession, as we're clearly going to be doing, uh, that um, companies are just taking a look at their money and working out where they can make a bit of savings right now. I mean, at 20 grand, um, as a local journalist, you're sort of subsidising the paper. And even though it might be, you know, your your big desire and the thing that you've always wanted to do. Um, I mean, a lot of these people surely will look for work outside of the, the media sector. And who'd blame them, I suppose? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, th- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of benefit f- by paying somebody what they're really worth and not uh, assuming that somebody wants to desperately get into the print media, which, you know, to be fair, is not where the excitement is these days. Uh, the excitement is in other places. So I think it's uh, always worthwhile keeping an eye on that and keeping, uh, you know, making sure that your business is as competitive as it can be to attract new people. I mean, James, your background's radio. I mean, radio and print have never had the highest salaries. But as you said there, there's lots of places you can go in digital media, which is kind of as fun and sort of reaching lots of audiences, but the the pay's better. I mean, definitely if you compare podcast production to radio, it's in a much more healthy state. Yeah, and I think it's not just uh, the pay is better. The whole ecosystem is, in inverted commas, better as well. You have less editorial guidelines to worry about. You have less people telling you that you can't tweet that and you can only tweet this, you know, and so on and so forth. So I think as we've seen over the last year of uh, many people leaving the BBC and leaving other large organisations as well, we're very clearly seeing that people are leaving not just for higher wage packets, but also they're leaving for more creative freedom and I think that that's certainly a part of that if you're a creative person. Well further strikes are planned on September 13th, 14th and 15th but it isn't something that's just uh, contained to reach. Over at the BBC newsroom uh, strikes are also brewing because the BBC centenary celebrations in October could be hit by strike action. The proposed channel closure and loss of 70 jobs forms part of a £500 million cost cutting restructure by Director General Tim Davey. The BBC have got to save a lot of money. Is uh, doing it in the news channel the right thing? I think certainly taking a look at uh, duplication is important. I don't think that anybody watches large international news channels like CNN or Fox News for their global shows. I think we watch them because it tells us what's going on, you know, in CNN's case in the US. And I think similarly, it's very weird watching the BBC World News Channel to see lots of stories about other places, but not very many stories about the UK. So I think from my point of view, I find it very strange being an expat here in Australia and and realising that the only real way to get news from the UK is either to watch Sky News UK or to listen to, frankly, to LBC's news updates rather than the more global stuff that you can get from the BBC. So I think, you know, there's certainly an opportunity there for the BBC to be a little bit more uk in its output. And I think it'll be interesting seeing what happens when they do merge the channels. 
Uh, well, Charlotte, the Guardian's also speculated that a recent GB News shakeup they they changed their, their schedule this week, uh, may have been in preparation to fill the domestic news gaps that the new BBC News channel might have. Is it a bad thing if other channels are, are looking to fill the gap, or, or should the BBC be looking at their plans uh, for particularly for UK audiences? I mean, in that sense, I suppose it's good for competition. I mean, Ofcom just did this sort of initial report saying about the BBC Channel merger, saying it didn't think it would. Uh, have a bad impact on competition, uh, which, you know, fine. But Ofcom also keeping an eye on sort of the quality of and quantity of the news output. Yeah, so G- as you say, GB News are launching these news shows, GB News Day and GB News Live. We don't know exactly what those will look like yet, but they do certainly sound a bit more like rolling or breaking news rather than just the punditry panel type show. But I would argue that Whatever else GB News might do, obviously that's very, very different to BBC News and its public service broadcasting requirements and its impartial delivering of news to UK audiences. So I do think if staff within BBC News itself are so concerned about the risk to um, UK news output, then we should probably listen to their concerns because they're the ones that are going to know best and um, it will still be a massive change to having the two dedicated, quite different services. James, do you think that the staff are just trying to keep the status quo going? What staff at the BBC trying to keep things um, the the way that they've always been? Uh, I, cu- I, cu- I couldn't think that that would ever happen. I think there's a little bit of that, but I also think that um, you know the, 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 you can you can clearly see that you can't necessarily produce something which is going to be as interesting to somebody who's watching the BBC World News Channel in Melbourne or in uh, San Francisco as in Doncaster and in Cardiff. You know, there, there are clearly some differences in terms of that. And I, I'm sort of slightly worried about the idea of squeezing in the UK news into the into the ad breaks, which is what some people say that is actually going to happen. So it'll be interesting, you know, waiting to see what happens. But clearly, the BBC is somewhere, you know, and I only spent two years there. But uh, my goodness, the amount of change in two years was quite something. And I'm sure that people are basically trying to go enough change we need to focus on what we're actually doing it's been a tremendously complicated last uh, two years with an awful lot of broadcasting from home and broadcasting using new technology so actually having some kind of certainty for where you're headed will be really helpful i think well, the BBC um, and legacy media aren't the only platforms facing challenges. This week, Snap announced a major restructure, uh, laying off 20% of its staff, cancelling original shows, in-app games and several other projects. Obviously, they're best known for the Snapchat app. Obviously, James, it's sad news for the staff this week. But it seems quite a rapid hmm. turnaround when earlier this year they were sort of announcing big ambitions for new original content. What do you make of this rapid downturn for the company? Yeah, and I think it's not just... Uh, snap uh, I think it's you, you know many different online companies who you know again potentially looking at a tightening of belts potentially looking at uh, how much revenue they're actually getting from these things you know obviously Quibi was a, a massive uh, failure uh, last year or the year before um, looking at doing much the same sort of content that uh, Snap was doing Facebook has stopped paying out as much to content creators as well recently Medium is stopping some of its content spending as well so my suspicion is that there's quite a lot of sort of tightening of belts as uh, people 
rework how much money they're actually spending on the uh, content that they're creating. I mean, Charlotte, they're kind of paring back the original content, killing off kind of in-game stuff. Do you think sort of paring that all back and and sticking to the knitting is going to help them recover? It does feel a bit like with all the changes to Instagram, for example, at the moment that everyone's been mad Mm. at and then people copying TikTok in different ways, it does kind of feel like if they just stick to what snapchat does best or you know why people still like it then maybe that's their best bet rather than spreading themselves too thin yesterday on press i had a an interview with the ceo of pink news and um, we were talking about gen z and he spent a long time talking about how amazing snapchat discover had been for them i mean still is he's very happy in terms of their advertising revenue potential but um yeah, it's interesting that then Snap announced that it was ditching its original shows on Discover. But for now, I don't think it's affecting the news content. If they stick to sort of the basic tenets of the app and what it originally got big for, then that is probably sensible right now. Well, there was much anticipation for the launch of the News Agents podcast this week. Uh, Global's new offering from Emily Maitlis, John Sopel and Lewis Goodall. Producer Dino Sophos of Persephonica and one third of the talent Lewis Goodall caught up with me the morning after the show's launch. Uh, Lewis began sharing why he decided to jump into the world of podcasting. Well, look, I think it was a very exciting and is a very, very exciting project. It's not really been tried before. Look, the news industry in a lot of ways, there's lots and lots of innovation in different bits of it. You know, uh, the BBC is a great organisation. Sky, where I worked before, is a great organisation, etc., etc. It is dominated by, you know, big... I don't really like the term, but you know what I mean by it, legacy media organisations, where sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to get new things off the ground. Dino and some of his projects are a notable exception. And, you know, this was a project which you don't often get the opportunity to sh- help shape, craft something entirely new from scratch. And given the quality of the people involved, Dino, Emily, obviously I knew, John, someone I'd greatly admired for a very long time. You know, to me, it increasingly became clear it was just an opportunity that was that was too good to miss. You know, at heart, certainly I've always been a sort of TV newsman. Love TV news. I love the craft of making TV news. I love the everything about it in many ways. But I think there's a this is a real moment of change within TV news and the industry more widely. And Global have big video ambitions, really big video ambitions, and they wanted someone to help them bring that along. And you know, to chance to sort of synthesise that with what we're doing on the podcast was just really, really exciting. So I just thought, in the end, why not? So you're kind of presenting the, the Friday episodes, uh, but also getting a bit mm-hmm. more involved in the, in the TV offering. Uh, what, what's Friday's going to sound like and what are your video plans to sit around, sit around the podcast for Global? I mean, I think it's important that the Friday episode, even though John and Emily won't be there, it's not going to feel, it's not a different show. It's the same show. It's still the news agents. It's just going to, not least because, you know, I'll, as, as I was yesterday, I'll be on shows from Monday to Thursday, you know, on a regular basis doing different things. So, you know, it's not going to feel like a kind of completely different thing. Inevitably, it will be slightly different. And, you know, people will be able to see in the Fridays to come how it is different. In terms of the video offering, look, as I say, Global's got big video ambitions. They're really, really keen to get into video journalism and video reporting. And that is my kind of bread and butter. What, as I say, I love to do. 
what I think has tremendous, particularly in the way that the news environment is at the moment, what generates enormous response from audiences. I think what it's fair to say is that video journalism, particularly in the British market at the moment, does not have enormous, in the traditional sense, does not have enormous traction, particularly with younger viewers. And I think that is something, you know, you look at the most recent Ofcom data, if you want some evidence of that. You know, I think there is a real challenge about reinventing the TV news package for a new age. Something I've always been very struck by, something I was talking a lot with Global about when we were in discussions about this, is that, you know, if you go back to, I don't know, say 2002, and you look at an episode of a, or a sort of a bulletin from 2002, it wouldn't feel or look that different to what it does in 2022. Now, there is almost no other bit of television that one can say that about. And I think there's a really interesting challenge that's just a really interesting opportunity, which is just there for the taking, about reinventing what that TV news package looks like for a digital age. And I think if we can even get half close to cracking that, we will be doing something very, very exciting that others will seek to emulate. Uh, Dean, I mean, Lewis there kind of mentioned younger audiences. Who Who's the target audience for this? Is it kind of Americast listeners? Is it younger audiences? Where Where do you think people are going to be coming from and who are they? In terms of where people are coming from, I think definitely there's a huge appetite, as I alluded to at the start, of Americast listeners who really like John and Emily's chemistry, who who are waiting for this, and that's great, and we want to be a home for them, and, and that's why we are still, you know, John and Emily also want to talk about America a lot, so that's going to be a staple of what we do, absolutely. But look, I, th- I think we really want to push to try and attract more younger listeners absolutely and they're so also, hungry for the news we know that from news, all yeah. the data they are absolutely ravenous for the news right we're not talking about sometimes i think if you've been talking about this 20 years ago you would have been talking about a generation which was relatively depoliticized i think probably when dino i were growing up all the talk was kind of like no one was interested in politics it was a depoliticized time it was deeply boring no one cared that is so not true right that is so not true so there's just this huge market which is i mean it's not like no one's feeding it or it isn't being satisfied because it is but there is an opportunity to extract part of it absolutely and we know from you know producing podcasts before that there are lots of younger listeners who are hungry for this content who want to consume news in a different way so we want to be a space for for them to do that on a daily basis and that's why alongside the audio strategy as as you know matt the podcast industry is evolving on a daily basis and it's not just audio visualization is really important the fact that we we're, we're clipping and pushing our clips out on tiktok which is probably going to end up being our main social platform i think for for generating content to try and pull audiences in through different platforms to come back to the podcast and also as well i th- i would like to think that we will try and attract you know politics is a big part of what we do but we never set out to just create another podcast for the SW1 set. I mean, there's plenty of that. And we would love them to listen. And look, you know, if I know there are lots of people like me who are a bit weird and listen to kind of like 20 hours of political podcasts a week. (laughs) Just the 20. Just the 20. So I'm sure I'm sure there'll be lots of people who will listen to, you know, Seb Payne's fantastic podcast or the, you know, New Statesman and will listen to this as well. And that's great. And they might choose the episodes depending on, on, on what interests them. And that's absolutely brilliant. But what we want to do is create a habit. We want people to find this as a, a useful space to learn about what's going on in the world. You know what? I mean, I've loved already is seeing a few messages which I've seen from a few people saying things like, I've never subscribed to a podcast before, but I have now. Or Your mum. 
No, well, my mum, that is true. That is true. I wasn't thinking of her, but uh, yeah. this was, uh, you know, someone, a couple of other people. But yes, that is true. My mum, God love her. But, you know, I'm already listening to this on my, this is, you know, my daily walk or the mm. walk with the dog or whatever. That is like, you know, as someone who, you know, has made his career in, as I say, television news, which is far more kind of regimented about when you watch it and how you watch it. It's almost a bit like a kind of ritual that you sort yeah. of sit down. That is a kind of level of kind of intimacy, if you like, which I think is just kind of, it's thrilling. It's, it's incredible. And, yeah. that's, and that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to com- create a large community of listeners. And eventually, Matt, we have ambitions uh, to take this show on the road. We want to do live shows. We want to really reach out to lots of people and have them feel that they're part of this club that we're creating. And that's what everybody aspires to do in podcasting. That was Dino Sophos and Lewis Goodall from The News Agents. The podcast is out every weekday evening. And later today, Friday, will be Lewis's first solo show. So watch out on Global Player or your podcast app of choice. And if you want to hear a full interview with the guys, why not become a supporter of the show on Patreon? Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod. We'll be back after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I'm still here with Charlotte Tobit and James Cridland for uh, another story. And I guess it's an Australian one for our special guest, James. Uh, This week, Chris Dawson, the subject of the popular true crime podcast, The Teacher's Pet, was convicted of killing his wife, Lynette Dawson. James, tell us a bit about the background and what's your reaction to this sort of latest, more final development. Yeah, so this was a show that was really heavily promoted by The Australian, which is Rupert Murdoch's national newspaper here, and a large broadsheet paper. I think it was the first show ever to be promoted on the front page of the paper almost every single week. Being fair, Headley Thomas, who hosts the, uh, The Teacher's Pet, he started his investigation and the podcast at the same time as the New South Wales Police had reopened their inquiries. So it might not be entirely true that the podcast 
led directly to Chris Dawson's arrest. But uh, and we should also note that he has yet to be uh, sentenced as well. So it's interesting from that regard that, you know, clearly the reason why most people know about this particular case now is because of the podcast. But the podcast also almost meant that he got off. You know, the uh, the podcast nearly derailed the entire trial because what Chris Dawson's lawyers were arguing was that the show had made it almost impossible to find a witness who hadn't heard the show and it might have stopped the chance of a fair trial. So they managed to delay the court case for nine months. The podcast hasn't been available here since 2019. I believe it uh, is scheduled to go live again once more tomorrow. And in the end, Chris Dawson's lawyers got a trial without jury. So, you know, it's, it, the, there are questions there, I think, in terms of what true crime podcasts can do in something which is a cold case that might end up actually stopping a court case from actually happening. I mean, it does sort of show that um, podcasts are having real-world implications on court cases. I I mean, I don't imagine it's something that podcast producers are thinking that much about, but um, it could cause problems later. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could. I mean, you know, Justice Elizabeth Fullerton, who was the uh, justice who was there to basically work out whether or not the case should go ahead or not, she ended up saying that, you know, there was a real need for journalists and broadcasters, she calls us, or podcasters, to apply restraint if we were to coexist with the fundamental right of a person accused of a serious crime to be tried in a court of law, not a court of public opinion. And I think one of the additional things here is, is of course, you know, I, I like you, come from a broadcast radio background. I've done quite a lot of entertaining media um, training, but quite a lot of podcasters simply haven't and quite a lot of podcasters think that they can talk about this stuff without really knowing some of the ins and outs in terms of what you can actually say. So my suspicion is that we will see podcasts in the future which actually stop a court case going ahead and possibly allow some of the guilty to go free. I mean Charlotte you're in the the more factual world but is it troubling when murder convictions are entangled with a true crime genre bit of a blurry space between sensationalized storytelling and an investigation I guess. Yeah definitely I agree that it's it's something that people need to be careful about. It's kind of interesting that Headley Thomas uh, you know is a don't want to say proper journalist but traditionally I think Mm. he's sort of a career journalist whereas I think my concern would be particularly with the fact that anyone can just pick up a mic or a phone and and try and be a podcaster and you know some of those do get big and then if there's people without any media law training in particular um, sort of getting big and deciding to try true crime, maybe that's when the problems will be. Because, you know, in newspapers and things, um, say if someone decides to do a feature or a, a Radio 4 series about a cold case, it would be legal so heavily and they probably would take a lot of these more problematic or sensationalist details out, whereas podcasters maybe... You know, I'm not saying all podcasters are like this, but maybe could mm. could go a bit more rogue, and and that probably is something that we need to yeah be careful about. Uh, thanks both. I think we've just got enough time for the media quiz. Bad luck. This week we're playing Who's in the Spotlight. I'm looking for three figures or companies who have been called out in the media this week. Mm. Buzz in with your name if you know the answer. So James, you will say James, and Charlotte, you will say Charlotte. Excellent. Uh, Right, here we go. Question number one. Who was caught on a hot mic over some podcasting rivalry? Charlotte. (laughs) 
Yes, Charlotte. So um, the Times revealed this. It was uh, the answer is uh, Ros Atkins. He was hosting the media show. And basically, when they uploaded this week's episode to BBC Sounds, there was a bit of hot mic left at the end of it, I think. And it basically had Ros Atkins saying that uh, fellow BBC journalist Adam Fleming had sent him a, uh, quote, pissy message because um, (laughs) they'd done an episode of the media show about news podcasts and hadn't had Adam or a colleague from the BBC on Yes, it was pretty unfortunate and um, uh, it buzzed around the BBC newsroom and then uh, off to the Times. I'm really interested in how that outtake made it onto the BBC Sounds app in the first place. You know, I mean, normally they take the programme which has been made, not, you know, taking some sort of random bit of, um, you know, of uh, hot mics at the end. So I'm fascinated to learn how that actually got on there in the first place. Oh, it sounds like a, a new true crime podcast. Um, uh, an accidental hot mic has ever happened to you? Uh, I did once swear very, very, very loudly on a commercial radio station in West Yorkshire. Um, and I managed to just about get away with it. Uh, okay, question number two. Uh, who riled up Nick Robinson after cancelling an interview at the last minute? Charlotte. Oh, James. I think Charlotte was just, just there first. Uh, who was it, Charlotte. Liz Truss by cancelling her one-on-one interview with him and Rishi had already done it ages ago. Uh, Yes, she said that she could no longer spare the time. Uh, Nick responded with an article on the BBC and he sort of pit on the one show and things and talked about why politicians increasingly see TV and radio interviews as a risk and not an opportunity. Charlotte, do you think that's what's happening here in the UK? Yeah, I do. Um... It felt like over the past few years there were uh, a lot of moments where that had happened. You know, there was all the stuff about uh, the boycott of, of the government of Good Morning Britain and, you know, Boris Johnson going into a fridge and then maybe the more farcical versions. But I think there are other examples of of things more like this Liz Trust. And I think there was another interview earlier in this leadership race that it took her quite a while to sort of agree to. There have also been times where just no one from the government has been available to talk about, for example, the energy crisis. So um, it does feel like it's gone that way, yeah. They don't need the media as much as they used to, do they? And they can they can control their own message and disseminate it through their own channels. No, and, and uh, I think particularly with uh, Liz uh, Truss, uh, she wants to avoid a mauling from Nick Robinson. It will only do her harm if, you know, she's in in the lead by, by all accounts at the moment. And frankly, it, you know, we don't get to vote anyway. It's up to the 0.4% or whatever it is of... Of, of the UK who are Conservative Party members. Let's not forget that Nick Robinson told Boris Johnson when he was Prime Minister to stop talking when he last interviewed uh, him. So, you know, I think the BBC do get very annoyed when somebody says, no, I don't think I want to be interviewed, as if they've got some kind of right. But they really don't in this particular case. And I think Liz is probably fair enough wanting to keep it incredibly safe so that she sails in and is the saviour that uh, the UK desperately needs. But isn't that a bit of a problem from a sort of, from the public's position of the person that's our next Prime Minister you know, isn't being asked the tough questions that um, we would like to know the answers 
too. Yeah, I think that that's a fair point. But I also think at the moment, you know, it's not really up to the public who the next prime minister is going to be. That's a wider issue, which, um, you know, I, I think certainly should be had a look at. But I think, you know, in this particular case, really the Liz Truss-Rishi Sunak competition isn't something that the public can really do very much about. What I'm hoping is that once Liz is uh, crowned as our new queen, uh, then she does go and do a bunch of these interviews. And I think it would be an important thing for her to do. Well, uh, question number three, and James, it's your last chance to claw back uh, a little bit of glory. Uh, Which social platform frustrated journalists by breaking its own embargo? (laughs) James. Go for it, James. Yes, uh, this is Twitter, uh, isn't it? I do hate embargoes. Um, But as soon as a company breaks an embargo, then uh, so far as I'm concerned, there isn't an embargo anymore. And so I will just publish anyway. This was the story that uh, Twitter has that they've added an edit button. There was a huge bunch of tweets from somebody called Sam Haverson, who's product lead on edit tweet. And uh, they said it took a talented team across product, engineering, design, research, data science, marketing, comms, legal and trust and safety to make it happen. It's only an edit button. How, how, how does it possibly take all of these people to make it happen? But still, there we are. So Twitter managed to um, break their own embargo and publish about the new edit button 20 minutes early, which uh, rather annoys quite a lot of tech journalists. Uh, Charlotte, are you going to be keen to edit your tweets? Oh, yeah. I mean, I hate a typo. <laughs> In response to what James said, I think I think the reason you've got to be careful with it and it could have been misused is obviously people could, you know, think that they're liking or sharing something in good faith. And then this tweet gets changed. And then obviously Mm. people can can do that in quite bad faith ways. But I think um, it seems like they have got around that quite well. Uh, You're going to be able to view the edit history, essentially, a bit like on like Wikipedia Mm. or something, I guess. which I think should work quite well. And you can only edit for 30 minutes as well. I mean, I've seen people saying that's too long anyway. I mean, if you've got a typo or you realise you should have included something or whatever, you ought to realise that before half an hour. I think maybe 15 minutes or 10 minutes would be fine. But um, yeah, hopefully at least I think they've got around this potential bad faith problem. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I wrote an editing function for a a discussion system that I built a while back. And the rule was really simple. You can edit your own post until someone else interacts with it, like replying. And once they've replied to it, you can't edit your message anymore. And I think that that's probably a a sensible way of doing things. I mean, I always just think with this one, um, why don't you just delete the tweet and rewrite it? I mean, it's a bit of a pain, but at least there's a a, a clarity with it. I mean, James, there's been quite a few um, new product announcements from Twitter recently, uh, and one around podcasts. They've been added to sort of Twitter, around Twitter spaces, their sort of audio interview system. Have you had a, a look at the podcasting feature? Yes, I mean, I've had a bit of a look at it. It's it's a very weird podcasting feature because you won't be able to choose the podcasts that you listen to. Uh, it's basically a playlist of shows that it thinks you might like based on the people who you follow and the subjects that they end up tweeting about. So it's not really a podcast app, but it's definitely a new way of getting your shows out there. The frustrating thing, I think, is that it's only available to people whose language is English, but also it's only available to 
people who they've turned on. And my understanding is it's less than 10% of people who actually have Twitter. So there are quite a few podcasters who have no idea what this platform looks like, or indeed how to make sure that their shows appear on the platform as well. And I think we'll just have to wait and see what the deal is there. Uh, well, well done, Charlotte. Uh, two points to one. Uh, as a prize, you get to host your own true crime podcast, but only on Twitter. Thanks both for joining us. James, how can people find out what you're writing about? Oh, I write uh, every day about podcasting at podnews.net. And Charlotte, how about you? Pressgazette.co.uk and our weekly podcast of Future of Media Explained is back after a summer break now. Excellent. Thank you both and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show this week. Why not give us a cheeky plug on your social media platforms of choice? Just a link. Just a link. That's all you need. Podfollow.com slash the media podcast or work. Uh, help spread the news about the show. Or why not become a patron of the show on Patreon? Just go to patreon.com slash mediapod and it will give you a whole cross-section of deep dives to listen to when you have a spare five minutes that need filling. My name's Matt Deegan. You can find my weekly newsletter all about the audio industry and more at mattdeegan.com. The producer of the show was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It was a Rethink Audio production, and we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.